C-Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about modern materials. I'm Jen Mathiason, an objects conservative based in South Yorkshire. I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservative based in Greater Manchester. And I'm Christina Rizek, an objects conservative based in Cambridgeshire. And today in the studio we have special guest host, Sophie Rowe. Welcome, Sophie. Hello. Hi. It's very nice to be here. I'm honoured to be asked to be here today. <laughs> oh, we're thrilled to have you. Thank you. So, Sophie, would you like to introduce yourself and what you do? Uh, yes, I'm also an objects conservator based in Cambridge. Um, I actually work at, in the Polar Museum, which is one of the University of Cambridge Museums. Uh, one of the projects that we're doing at the University of Cambridge Museums is uh, looking at plastics in the collections, all of the collections, and trying to kind of come up with a way to manage them. Uh, so we're sort of at the beginning of quite a big process there. I feel like I know very little about modern materials in general and plastics in particular, because I feel like it wasn't covered very much at university level. And afterwards, it's been surprisingly tricky sometimes to find information about about things like plastics and modern materials because it's still something that's quite new to our collections so there's not masses out there that's easily accessible uh, d- does anyone want to agree or disagree with that assessment <laughs> I, can't, well, I, I i'm coming from a point of um not knowing much but having a hell of a lot to deal with in my job <laughs> so the museum i work at is particularly keen and active in uh, contemporary collecting um that uses in objects that tend to use a lot of everyday materials and also a lot of really modern technologies to create sort of media and objects generally and i'm finding it really difficult to well essentially you start off with the point of this is probably going to be completely different in 10 years but i don't know why because there's no information about what sellotape actually is because it's copyrighted for various reasons <laughs> and also you know what effect do various types of printing methods have and i just don't know where to find the information things like t-shirt manufacture and technologies of oh, t-shirt wow. printing that's fairly mm. well communicated yeah. different types of plastics what the plastics are and then from then on you can extrapolate what probably is going to be happening with them but in terms of different types of printing and um paperwork it's just i just don't know i love that you've already gone almost off piste in terms of what i was yeah, thinking sorry because i'm like oh my god t-shirts <laughs> t-shirts and collections i hadn't even considered that which uh, it's great because but the I printing mean, is final isn't it often yeah. so uh, so it is plastic yes yes exactly and i hadn't even considered that i mean i was thinking just sneaky plastics bakey like things things that are fake tortoise shell and are is actually a type of plastic and yes yeah, so nylon the, tights and you know, yeah that's the type of object i used to when i was working in uh, with with a sort of science collections and computing collections that's the kind of thing mm. that i was familiar with and oh my god foam any kind of plastic oh. foam jesus mm. but oh. now i'm thinking about you know this is saturated with this and this is coated with this and hey, yeah. is this gloss paper gloss because of the paper or printing i just I just don't know <laughs> so that's me <laughs> yeah wow okay so already like a whole world has opened up to me about where plastics can be found in collections jesus which sophie you must be familiar with doing this plastic well, project well enough i think chloe's just suggested a whole new seam of horrors <laughs> which might be appearing because i i don't particularly have to deal with that kind of thing but i think that question about what is this made of is yeah. is fundamental to the whole problem and as you rightly say a lot of 
uh, the kind of things that have ended up in museums. Either there isn't any information or the information was protected in some way. Mm. Um, so we don't always know. And although you can get a surprising amount of information out of things like patent numbers. So mm. if you've got an object with a patent number on it, you can actually go to Google Patents. You can look up the patent number and it will quite often tell you that kind of thing if you're lucky enough to have that number on there. And obviously, if you've got things that are really quite recent, then you'll often have that funny triangle mark, the one that, that you know, that you're probably familiar with from your home where you sort of, how can I recycle this? And you yeah. have a triangle and it's got a number in it and that tells you what the plastic is. But then obviously there's lots and lots of material which doesn't have either of those things on it or where you're looking at part of something else. Um, and that is another challenge is, you know, how do you manage something that's part of a, a bigger object where the plastic part needs one sort of environment or kind of treatment and the rest of it needs something completely different. So there's that whole kind of composites problem. So, I mean, I, I think like you, I've, I've kind of, I'm only quite recently going into this. You say I know a lot about plastics. I don't think I do, but I have done a bit of training and started thinking about it. Um, and I came from the same position of knowing, you know, pretty much nothing. I certainly wasn't taught about it at university because, you know, it was about 100 years ago anyway. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it was a thing that anybody You look really great for being 100 years old. Thank you. Thank you. A lot of polyfiller. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> But, uh, I feel there ought to be a joke about plastic surgery in there, but I can't oh, <laughs> Yeah, well, funny enough, I mean, you were mentioning the problem of um, finding information. And I, my impression at the moment is that there are now some more courses that are coming out that are aimed at conservators. And one of them, funny enough, was called plastic surgery. Um, I yeah. can't remember because they're all punning. And the other one's called fantastic plastic or something, or possibly not. Anyway, these words get banded around. But I know the V&A have been offering a course recently, which looks at trying to identify plastics without having any fancy instrumental techniques. Oh, brilliant. Um, and then... Uh, the Museum of London have also been uh, running a course, which was, uh, I, I believe, headed by Abby Moore. Yeah, she I went us... on it last week. You should talk about that, <laughs> yes. Christina. Um, she, I visited her and talked to her. She's a fantastic person. She got Student Conservator of the Year for her work on a collection of handbags at the Museum of London. And she's really, really good. So I think Christina should talk about that course a bit later yeah. if she can. Um, <laughs> So there, there are starting to be some things that are a bit more accessible um, than the, the one course that I think people mostly have heard of, which is the Westine course in conservation of plastics, which is absolutely fantastic. And I did go on it. But the problem is it's a three day course. And in the nature of that, it's quite an expensive one. Mm. So it's not always quite as manageable. I mean, I, I went and a couple of colleagues went and we all managed to get grants to go. But, you know, it's, it took quite a lot of planning and, and all that in order to get to do that thing. Um, but the Westine course is also really, really good. Um, um, that is headed by Yvonne Shashua. Um, she's a scientist at the National Museum of Denmark now, although she previously worked at the British Museum. And she's been working on plastics easily for 20 years, if not longer. Um, so she's just got an enormous amount of knowledge and she's a good communicator. And one of the great things that uh, you do on the Westine course is you get a chance to set fire to things and sniff them, which is <laughs> rare in a conservation it's, it's health course. Health and safety <laughs> Oh, it's so much fun. It's a real guilty pleasure because you wouldn't dream of doing this with your artifacts. But yeah. traditionally, the way people used to identify plastics was to take a little tiny piece out of them and then you put it on the end of a needle and set fire to it. And then you would look at the character of the flame and you would decide, is this flame flaring up very quickly and is it very smoky? And of course, you know, if you've got a very tiny sample, it, it kind of goes Woof, and it's gone. And you think, oh, I blinked. I would have missed the crucial moment when I was supposed to decide what the character of the flame was. <laughs> and on that basis, identify the plastic. 
Um, and then you sniff away, you sort of waft the smell of the of the fumes at yourself and you have to decide, does this smell of cinnamon or raspberries or does it smell of chlorine or what does it smell of? And I have to say that, to me, after a while, they all smell of burnt plastic. I couldn't get yeah, all gonna of say. that <laughs> distinction. So, you know, it, it was a very instructive thing to try these, you know, old-fashioned methods um, because it made me realise I wouldn't think in a million years of doing this with an actual artefact. Well, so um, I'm interested that they were taught on the course because we, we had a bit of a discussion about this on the uh, plastic surgery course that I went on last week. Yeah. Because um, uh, one of the people there had been on the West Dean course and said that they'd done this, but then said, but of course we wouldn't dream of doing that on an actual object. So then how useful are these methods for museum collections? Well, you may well ask. I think the only, there was only one of those tests that I thought I might ever consider using. And that was the one where, which is, I think it's called the Bielstein test. And it's for identifying PVC, because essentially when you have, when you flame this little tiny piece from your your object, which can be just almost like taking a hot needle to it. And you've just got a very small sample. Um, it will give you a bright green flame and it's absolutely unequivocal. And there's mm. no possibility of mistaking it for anything else um maybe the point of it is to make you realize this is this is a complete dead end you shouldn't try and do this with your collections um so yeah it's an interesting one i mean yvonne cheshire has written a book called conservation of plastics which is one of these butterworth books um and it's extremely informative and an awful lot of the information that she gives in this course is in that book um, and it does talk a lot about these tests um, and when the book was written in 2008, it may have been that there was more of a sense that, you know, people were having to fall back on those very old fashioned ways of doing mm. things. But I, I suspect the field is moving ahead and, and we've now got more possible instrumental techniques that we might be able to use. But, yeah, maybe it was just for fun. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we are often open as conservators to the idea of destructive testing, of course. But mm. usually that's in order to do to use some sort of instrumental analysis where the results are, you would hope, a bit more definite. Um, and I think the problem I have with this kind of um, setting fire to things, the flame tests and so on, is, isn't so much the destructiveness of it, because I think you probably could justify taking a small destructive sample in some cases. I think it's like you said, the fact that it, it's so easy to just get nothing out of it. Yeah, exactly. Um, you've destroyed something and you don't and you know. It, you and know. You, or, or alternatively, it's just not as cut and dried and I think particularly when you're dealing with a degraded plastic actually the character of the smell that you are trying to you know determine it, it may well not be exactly what the kind of you know classic smell of whatever it is it, actually how it comes across do you see what I mean I think it doesn't it doesn't necessarily behave the way you would expect it to behave because it's deteriorated yeah so on the whole conservatives do seem to accept that this probably is isn't something that they're ever going to do in reality but I think in private uh, collectors still probably do try and use this it is something that seems to be mentioned um if you if you look around in the kind of the literature of people who are selling and in the in the market for plastic plasticquarian market you might call it um, I think perhaps people do still talk about this kind of thing and, and it's uh, an issue because there's a value for jewelry particularly I think where you've got fake light and all this kind yeah. of thing and trying to trying to tell whether you've got a fake whether you haven't those kinds of things I think that's where where this has all kind of come up but now it seems that the focus for non-instrumental techniques is much more on what can you learn just by the physical characteristics of something and that's something that I know they've developed a lot at the VNA so Brenda Keenahan is another scientist who's been involved with plastics for a very long time it's very knowledgeable and she also contributed to the Westine course actually um, and the VNA have recently run a course 
um, with Karin van Oudel, who came from the Netherlands, actually, and has spent several months developing a kind of decision tree. And I think what happened was originally the Museum of Design in Bournemouth had a decision tree about characteristics that you can see on plastics. You know, has it got a mark? It does. It, what is it like? You know, is it shiny? Is it flexible? You know, all the different characteristics that you might come up with. <clears throat> and uh, and then based on the on your answers, it would then narrow you down to different possible plastics that it might be. And she found that that decision tree didn't really work for the kinds of collections she was interested in, which were more domestic materials. So she then went into charity shops and had a lot of fun. And uh, in fact, the V&A are responsible for the Museum of Childhood, which has got a lot of toys. Um, and so perhaps I should step back a little bit and say a lot of the work that's been done on plastic identification has been based around the arts, because for modern art, a lot of which is based on plastic, um, there are also huge insurance values. And when things are degrading, the, the loss of cultural value is, is also very high. And so AXA Insurance, I think, sponsored a huge research project called Pop Art. And the great thing about that is you can get it all online. All of the papers from that are online for free. And it talks about all kinds of different aspects of it. But you'll notice when you do uh, look through the Pop Art project that it's very focused on modern artworks and that anything to do with the history of science and anything to do with domestic life, toys and those kinds of things, things that are part of our everyday lives now, um, and which are also creeping into modern artworks where you get people using recycled materials that they've found on beaches and all sorts of things like that. Those are not particularly represented. Um, so the, what the V&A have been doing is trying to kind of address that balance, I think, and, and focus a bit more on domestic materials. And what Carrion did was then spent a lot of time investigating these materials and checking her answers on FTIR, but trying to build a better decision tree. And that was the focus of the training that they were then offering. And I went again, along with a couple of colleagues and, and did this training. And I have to say, it, it did seem, it's very encouraging in a way. And you can dis discover quite a lot about a plastic by looking at it and trying to get as much information out of its characteristics as you can, that you can see and feel and smell and touch. But it's still not very accurate, you know, in terms of deciding what is this. And, you know, it makes a difference between using one type of storage, which is going to improve its lifespan versus another type, which might actually make things significantly worse you still may not be able to make that call. And so I'm, I'm still worried about this. I still feel that if you haven't got a big, expensive uh, instrumental machine, it's not easy to get a result um, that you can rely on. So, yeah. So I'm, I'm interested in what you say about, obviously, the domestic materials facet is the bit that I'm personally interested in, but also the, the collecting of materials from charity shops etc is that in order to do more or less destructive testing and deterioration testing because that, that's something that I've been considering doing myself is there are there do you have you uh, come across any examples of people essentially leaving sellotape or other bits and pieces in bright lighting or next to radiators or something to sort of to construct some kind of data for um, how these things deteriorate because it I feel like it if a lot of these sorts of materials are very similar or the, you know sellotape tends to be this sort of plastic and this type of ink tends to be this sort of ink if we can rather than say exactly what the chemical structure is if we can find out general patterns of deterioration that might be a something that smaller museums or museums that don't have access to testing could also have access to or do themselves. I, I think that you're right about that, but I haven't come across anyone who's doing that specifically. I think they, they seem to be looking at, actually, interestingly, I haven't come across anyone looking at tapes. I don't know if there's something that's happening more in the sort of paper, paper conservation field. I would imagine yes. that that's quite an important issue for them. But 
um, yeah, for the, this is very much artifact focused, and the use of charity shop material is yeah, so you can chop bits off and yeah. or chop them up and give samples to the people on your courses and all those kinds of things. It's, you're sort of free to do what you like, but it's quite interesting because obviously quite a lot of things in charity shops are quite old, although you don't know necessarily how old. You can possibly sometimes tell broadly are they ten, twenty years old. So you do, and they will be deteriorated in a kind of natural way. Um, so that's actually possibly quite useful because things that we might be looking at um, in museums are also going to be deteriorated. They're not just fresh out of the machine at all. Mm. I mean, to go back to the tape, actually, yes, paper conservators have done research into tape and so on, but usually that's looking at the negative effects of tape that has been used on archival materials, for example, and so on. But they're not necessarily looking at how to conserve the tape. no. Um, which is a rather different kind it of how to get it off with minimum damage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And 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 what what the deteriorating tape does to the paper, but that's not quite the same as saying I want to know how it deteriorates so I can preserve it for as long as possible because it's an integral part of this object. So I think that's that's an interesting one actually. I'd be interested to know if any paper conservators listening, or indeed any other kind of conservators listening, have um, had the experience of trying to conserve some aging sellotape. This is interesting. Write in and let us know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, this is interesting to me because I recently asked a question on Facebook. How, what do I do with masking tape I need to preserve? Like it's lost all stickiness. How do I stick it back on? And quite rightfully, people said, well, why, why would you want to keep it? Masking tape is bad, etc., etc." <laughs> and it's like, yes, except this is decorated masking tape that is integral to the object. So actually, I can't just slap on a new piece or, yeah. So, I, you know, already I, I'm starting to come across these things. So I, again, I would, again, please 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 do tell us if you're doing any kind of research on sticky back plastic or um or masking tape or anything like that because it's it's already a problem and we'd love to hear any advances whatsoever on it what what did you do did you stick did you find a way to stick the masking tape back on did you find out what masking tape is made of Honestly, uh, I've put that on the back burner and it's kind of in a nice little melanex <laughs> sleeve at the moment waiting for me to solve that problem. <laughs> uh, so I've had to... Um... One of the weird objects that I've worked on was a uh, nuclear hazmat suit um, in two parts. Yes, I know. Already pretty niche. <laughs> and actually the, the plastic itself, the, the actual the substance of the fabric, the plastic was pretty good, Nick, actually. There were a few bits of the, the harder plastic sealant that had cracked and in that case, you know, collect the bits but the the way they worked in the 1950s don't you know is that there were two parts uh, a top part with a hood um and a bottom part trousers with little feet and then they were taped together to form a seal and we had some of the they, they were mocked up uh, on display using the original tape so the tape was part of the object and now we did have i did have discussions with the curators at the time you know do i do I have to save the tape? You know, it's gone disgusting and it's peeling off and it's all gooey and gross. The carrier was fine, but the adhesive was totally, totally gone. So what I ended up doing was essentially removing the tape, removing the adhesive and cleaning the object of the adhesive uh, and retaining the tape in a, you know, coiled up kind of proper storage kind of way. In terms of display, I mean, I suppose it would have to be put on a mannequin and then if you wanted the original tape displayed it would need to be sort of faked almost you know wrapped around and pretended because uh, the idea of adding adhesive would make it difficult to remove again blah 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 but that's the approach I took to a tape 
essentially saying, so it's the adhesive that's the problem. Um, we'll have to treat the actual carrier as the object. But then is that ethical? I mean, it was is what I was like, it was what I could do at the time. But is the is the adhesive part of the object as well? I mean, it's it's a funny one because yeah, sure. Most of the time we treat uh, various tapes as kind of something undesirable that needs to be removed mm-hmm. because it's stained the object and it looks awful. It's peeling off or it's causing damage, etc. But sometimes things are generally made of these things. Like I'm thinking of, I'm, I'm imagining in some collections you'll probably have these duct tape wallets, for example, and stuff like that. Or like, you know, because people construct entire dresses of duct tape, for example, which will end up in a fashion museum it's somewhere. Highly inconsiderate, and, really, <laughs> You know, so, I, you know, there's quite a lot of scope for interesting problems there. So so one thing I saw in the news uh, a couple of weeks ago that made me think about this and, and about the, the challenges that are... Uh, upstream and hitting our way whether or not we like it was the news about the fatberg uh, that was discovered in oh, London God. sewers <laughs> uh, and oh. for anybody who managed to miss this story um, it is a berg uh, like an iceberg but um, made of a mixture of congealed fats and things that people have put into the sewage system that they shouldn't have done, like nappies and wet wipes and that sort of thing. And these things all kind of congeal together in one enormous lump. And I can't off the top of my head remember the dimensions of this thing, but it was colossal. It was something like 100 metres long. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, maybe a mile long. I don't know. But I saw uh, in the news that the Museum of London had approached, made approaches to see if they could have a bit and accession it for the collection. Media, media absolutely loved this. Media went crazy. I saw headlines in like loads of big papers. Quite right too. It's it's a big story. It tells us something about social history of London and all that sort of thing. And I'm sure it'll be a fabulous addition to the collection that will tell people a lot about decadent oh, early 21st up. century life <laughs> when they go to the it's museum in a hundred years time but uh, my first thought was oh my god the poor conservators who have yeah. to yeah. Yeah. deal yeah, with that because that is a mixture of all kinds of things um i'd like to know if anyone's asked the conservators before deciding to accession part of the well, yeah. <laughs> i think I've, I've seen i think oh, i've seen a couple of different groups of conservative friends discussing this separately on facebook um, which is a brilliant sample of general opinion as far as I'm concerned. Um, and all of them have had this exact viewpoint of who is going to look after that? Where is it going to be stored? How are you going to get it there? What conditions are you going to put it in? Who 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 has to be in charge of this? How do you move a giant amount of fat? Like, <laughs> was the general feeling, I think, across possibly the entire conservation community, apart from the paper conservators who are going, we never have to deal with this. <laughs> Modern people who look after modern art collections, of course, are used to uh, dealing with unconventional materials like yes, chocolate true. and blood and bread, steak. A steak. There's a yeah. famous dress by Helen Patrick made of steak. Right. Although I think actually it exists now only as a set of instructions about how to reproduce it because <laughs> they can't keep oh. steak. It was a long time ago. <laughs> Hey, I think Helen Chadwick died about twenty years ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's uh, that's also modern materials, arguably fresh meat. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I don't know what else is there in that you might count as modern materials. Something that we haven't talked about because it is kind of encompassed under plastics is technology. So, which is more of a composite object, regardless of how you look at it. 
Um, mm. So I'm thinking, you know, more like computer collections and technology collections. So we're talking old computers, old gaming consoles, mobile phones, smartphones, calculators, uh, well, mm. just about anything that has a microchip in it, for example. Uh, and there are vast collections of this private and public. And they do pose interesting challenges in and of themselves, just because they are composite objects and often made of a variety of plastics, which some of which last really well and some of which don't. So, for example, I'm thinking of my dad does a lot of what we would call private restoration work. He's not a conservator, but he does make things work again. He's a fixer. So he gets a lot of these uh, things like uh, old cassette players and audio equipment because he used to be an audio engineer. And uh, he then fixes them up and often he opens them up and finds that inside is runny, runny plastic goo because all the little belts that uh, make moving parts move inside these things have melted over time, not mm. from heat, just from their way of decomposing, which would be a frequent problem for us in museum collections as well, actually. And if you've ever had anything with those little plastic feet, um, yes, they melt quite often in a similar fashion, which is really gross to find when you're taking something I off a shelf. I found one of those like melted chocolate. Oh yeah, it's gross. really gross and it's super sticky and mm. it does not. Mm. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. So I mean, that's that's another type of modern material that we haven't really discussed. So technology, basically. I think um, I mean there there are now starting to be conservators who specialise in time-based media um, and in things that uh, have a uh, a player and then the the program if you like whether that's a, a whether the program bit is is an actual computer program or a video or you know something that that needs the technology to play on and obviously there are issues there of, of technology becoming obsolete also software becoming obsolete mm, uh, yeah. and so on so I, I think it's fantastic that institutions are starting to engage with that and that time-based media is starting to become a specialization in itself and um, icon has got internships Mm. And they, they tend to be based at the Tate, interestingly. I think yeah. you, it's interesting how it goes back to preserving artworks primarily yeah. at this point. But, but you know, in the long run, it's going to be about preserving a lot more than just that. And in your back to this question about the materiality, to what extent is it important to play these things on a floppy disk, which is already, you know, a thing that just people laugh. I have, it's it just, there are, you know, we've all got examples in our life of things that we can't play anymore. My cassette tape collection, even my CD collection, I suddenly look at it mm. thinking, yep. why have I got this? You know, I, I can't even play DVDs on my most recent computer, which is only was yep. four years old now. It doesn't have a DVD player unless you go and buy the software. So things are moving very, very quickly. And, and I think that in many collections, there are going to be these issues coming up. But how important is it to play the thing on the machine that was originally used? I think, yeah. you know, there are going to be lots of these interesting ethical decisions to be made. So we, we in our Raspberry Pi episode, we had an example of a museum that used a Raspberry Pi to emulate the software mm. um, so that you could see the program running, but it just wasn't running on the original on the original machine. There is a museum in Cambridge where you can play the original games on the original machines, mm. Museum of Computing. I don't know if you've been there. It's so cool. And my children think it's the best <laughs> museum in the entire history of the world. <laughs> but, you know... I do find myself thinking museologically, hmm, hmm, how is this all going to work? You know, have you got extras? And, you know, to what extent are you considering these things sacrificial and all that kind of thing? I think we hmm. tend to be maybe a bit more cavalier about things like this because of the fact that they're often mass produced 
Mm. Um, and so you tend to take the attitude, well, there's loads of these things around, you know, it's not, you, you can always just buy another one or find another one in a charity this shop or on eBay. Used or to say about natural history collections, oh, you can always just go and shoot another panda. <laughs> or, and indeed, ethnographic collections. Oh, well, these guys, those funny guys with the nose rings, they're still around. We can just go and get more of this. And suddenly they're not. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I mean, it's, this... it's true for digital materials just because they are outdated so quickly. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I hope we'd learn a bit from, from yeah, this no, no, assistant yeah. in the past. You're quite right. I think that it, people are quite cavalier. Yes, yes, exactly. Sorry, I'm, I'm going to throw something out here, which is possibly controversial. So something I quite enjoy because I'm a nerd uh, because my dad was an uh, was an audio en- engineer and stuff like that. I quite like watching YouTube videos of people, for example... Uh, unearthing these amazing obscure pieces of technology that are now outdated and obsolete and presenting them and telling us all about how they were used what their history was and their development uh, showing how they worked etc because that is a type of preservation showing and sharing with people that these things existed because ultimately we might not be able to keep that piece piece of equipment so actually i think that's a genuinely valuable thing and i'll post a couple of examples in the show notes if anyone's interested in properly nerdy stuff but it's it's an interesting thing because ultimately if we just keep these things in a warehouse somewhere they're not going to be functional Uh, and it's it's unclear if we can keep them functional and if it's worth keeping them functional so it's it's one of those things that actually i think people are doing a genuine service to everyone by sharing these things time-based media though isn't it well yeah it kind of is isn't it um <laughs> back to the same problem yeah well, they are being <laughs> what will the internet um, look like in well yeah years? there is that like will youtube exist or will all these things disappear again uh etc etc and actually as a tangent to that sometimes i will also i will also watch um what i would term amateur restoration videos of these things oh, um yeah. but not I, I would say not terrible ones, but ones where people generally care about their private collection of technology and stuff like that. And they will restore a computer to to uh, a functioning spec again. That includes, you know, using spare parts from other broken computers and even bleaching the outside so they don't look so yellowed anymore. These them. things yeah. fascinate me because ultimately it gives me an insight into bits that I can't do. I don't have their technological skills to be able to do that but by watching them do these things i pick up a couple of skills even though i'm a trained conservator and they are not but ultimately i can go away and do the research that helps back up whether or not i think their approach is right and sometimes they do experiments that inform my practice which is kind of amazing Ooh, yeah, right. uh, where where they properly try different techniques and they back it up with oh these are the chemicals that are in these things and this is how it reacts with the plastic etc i mean some of these amateurs are genuine researchers and they just don't know it but anyway that's just me geeking out about what's available on youtube sometimes uh, obviously this doesn't isn't a blanket statement that every single restoration video on youtube is a good idea because it certainly is not but sometimes you can find gems and sometimes it can help me understand an object better i'm just saying we can all learn from each other what you've just said jenny it's interesting because, um, you know, one of the things that comes up when you're going back to the whole plastics thing and how you might treat plastics, um, I think that the courses and so on that are available in the UK at the moment focus very much on preventive conservation, understanding what you've got and trying to sort of improve storage. But they're starting to address this issue of interventive treatments and particularly quite things that we might regard as really quite simple things like cleaning. 
um, and and also a bit of adhesion. And I think you know, anyone can straight away understand there's going to be issues with solvents and so forth in in adhesives. But cleaning, cleaning, surely that should be fine. And we all have this sort of idea, I think, about you know very low impact cleaning includes things like brush and vacuum and then washing. Oh, you know that's all a bit more kind of interventive. Certainly as an objects conservator, in you know, focusing on organics, I tend to think washing is a thing I very rarely do and only after a certain amount of deep thought, you know. Um, but interestingly, when when you start, they, they've done a certain amount of testing on the impact on plastics of cleaning methods. And what they've discovered is that washing is actually for plastics often a much less interventive thing mm. because it doesn't cause the kind of surface scratching and problems that you get if you use what you, you, you sort of imagine is a more... Uh, gentle approach and using a dry cleaning method and it's the same I think when you start experimenting a bit with adhesives that you know some of the things that you might consider weren't, weren't a terribly good choice you're having to include new ideas like well maybe should we think about using super glue which to my opinion in my opinion it's not a conservation adhesive you know the cyanoacrylates I don't use those for anything except holding something for a very short time while I'm introducing something more archival but maybe actually for some situations they might be a better choice and so it, it's quite interesting because you, you sort of have to suspend all of your assumptions about the way you go about things and your kind of idea of the hierarchy of certain sorts of treatment and, and what they are good for and what they're not good for and and kind of go back with trying to leave a lot of those assumptions at the door and and just consider the treatments sort of you know from first principles and and look at the actual impact on the artifact and what it, it is or isn't going to uh, what, sorry how it is or isn't going to be affected by what you're doing um, that's quite exciting, um, but also <laughs> yeah. slightly intimidating because you do suddenly think, gosh, now, even if what I thought I knew, I can't rely on. You, know, you really have to go back to first principles with it. And what I do also notice is that, uh, you know, in the UK, we're very much not quite thinking about uh, interventive treatments on plastics at all. But I get the impression that in Germany, they are a lot further down the road with this. And I would love it if that expertise and that experience could be disseminated to a more international audience because there is a university in Cologne of um, modern where they actually teaching conservation of modern materials at master's level and they've developed a lot of treatment ideas and they're working actively on developing treatment ideas um, and I know about this through people who colleagues that are working there now and, and people who I've come across who are you know working in this field but it's not something that's necessarily percolating through to a wider audience so yes I would like to encourage them to come out and let us know what they found out because it's definitely a very challenging area oh absolutely and i think i think one of one of the things that makes me a bit sad is that there isn't enough information out there and there isn't enough research being published about it i mean i could be wrong about that there could be you know conference papers out there that are completely really really useful and informative for this sort of thing i think it's one of the gaps that we have at the moment is that the work there there has been an enormous amount of work done but it has been done Mm. by scientists and they are, although they are conservation scientists in some cases, they are, they are themselves not conservators and have never been conservators. So they are partly working in environments where they've, they've got quite good instrumental backup to help them with their research. But I think it's there's a gap between that information that they're generating and that knowledge and um, kind of percolating down to people who are actually practicing and needed to know some useful things on the ground and things that are realistic in a smaller institution where you don't have all of that sophisticated knowledge. But you you need your, to, to have your experience and your confidence built up so you can tackle that kind of thing. These are things we can't afford to ignore. And certainly in collections where people are accessioning new material, you know, that I think they need to be made more aware of what the impact on, on their future collections management is going to be. You know, is this actually sustainable to go and get a fantastic garland of flowers and condoms, which are sort of self-destructing? 
I'm, I'm not joking. This is actually an artifact that I saw just recently, and it's it's wonderful. And I absolutely understand why they want to have it in the collection. It's a really interesting thing, but it's also self-destructing. Um, and I think you know there, there are lots of these things, and, and whether curators and the people who are making the, the sort of acquisition decisions are necessarily thinking about the impact it's going to have on the conservation is, is questionable. I think that's quite a patchy story across different that is institutions. That's actually the, the exact problem um, that I've had. Yeah. Um, recently is is the well this is yes this is a fantastic object but let's just step back and think about what will its actual display possibilities be like in even just simply two years um depending on the material um and it can be really difficult to saying it can be difficult to communicate sounds like it's really negative saying oh we can't have that because it'll be dust in two years kind of thing obviously obviously (laughs) we don't want to take that attitude but it can be quite difficult to to say like okay so this is bear in mind it won't be beautiful for that long in 10 years it will be completely yellow in this number of years it will be sticky you know that sort of conversation can be quite negative and it would be I think my personally my priority and probably the priority of many other people is to essentially just have the background of knowledge to be able to say this is what I can do about it rather than just saying oh no it's not going to last. I think it comes down to resources again and having large numbers of plastics in your collection is potentially going to be very resource intensive Mm. um, and a lot of plastics benefit from uh, individual enclosures for example or from things like um freezing or you know things things that they they often need special storage methods that go beyond just kind of plonking them on a shelf or in a drawer or whatever Um, and so that takes up a lot of money and a lot of space potentially and a lot of conservator time and that obviously needs to be factored in when you're considering accessioning these things but I'm also thinking about things like the effect on other objects in the collection of having large amounts of decomposing plastic mm. in your store absolutely um, i think i mean some of the stuff that off gases from them is very bad for the objects around and potentially not terribly good for the people who might be yeah. in the store as well and you know there are issues about ventilation and so forth i mean i would have thought that the thing to do is to is to have a realistic assessment of what the demands of these artifacts are going to be and how important it is to you to have them in the collection in relation to that and sort of balance it out and make sure it's an informed decision. But I think possibly one of the things I, you know, as part of this project of trying to think about plastics in in Cambridge, we then decided, well, we'll go and visit um, other collections where they've got large collections and see what what they're already doing. And it was really instructive. We went to look at uh, the Science Museum collection, uh, the British Museum and the V&A and the Museum of London. And, uh, and all of them had interesting things that we could see, including a lot of these enclosures that Christina's mentioned. So using oxygen-free storage in their kind of passive bagging system. Um, and you get lots of tips like make sure the bags are really big so you can open them up a few times before you have to, you know, get a whole new set of um, the vapor barrier film, which is quite expensive, uh, that kind of issue. But also, I mean, certain concerns about do we know that we're still very oxygen free in there? Because after a while, this sort of little indicator eye that you put in there, which um, I think indicates when your uh, oxygen has got above 0.05 percent or something like that that in itself degrades and so you stop knowing whether you can rely on what it's telling you <laughs> so that then you have to go and open the package and put a new one in and then go through the whole thing of purging it with nitrogen mm-hmm. again so that it's not just a case of getting these things into those kinds of packaging in the first place but also monitoring looking at these things are they getting any worse and i mean i think we all know that a big program of monitoring is actually in itself time consuming even if you keep it to a short list of things you say we're going to now monitor these things not everything but just these things are the ones we're going to check it's still quite onerous 
And then freezing is another thing. There has been some work done recently. Sometimes you don't necessarily have to go as far down the track as you think you do. So Yvonne, one of the benefits of going to a course is uh, that Yvonne was able to show that um, some of the most recent research she'd done into using um, scavenging kind of atmospheres to deal with off-gassing from cellulose acetate and cellulose nitrate objects. And she found that actually just using acid-free boxes was enough to tackle, I think it was cellulose acetate, the off-gassing that you get from that, which is acetic acid when it deteriorates. Just using acid-free boxes is fine and you don't need to go to the expense and complication of using a microchamber or an activated charcoal cloth or any of that sort of thing, um, because you actually get better results using pure acid-free boxes to buffer that. But do you then need to change the boxes? Well, at some point you clearly do. And the problem with it is you don't quite know when that is you yes. sort of have to just play game of chicken and go right I think they must have expired by now and, and change them and yeah. again we don't this is the kind of information you don't always have because it's all so new you know it's fine to say we get better results but over what period and then when does that no longer work and at what point do you have to then change it it's to say actually activated charcoal has always got this problem that you don't quite know how long it lasts for sure um, yeah so it's just problems whichever <laughs> way you look <laughs> lots and lots of things to think about but, but I think, you know, it's all it all adds to that picture, doesn't it, of, you know, how, how much does having this stuff in our collection mean to us? What's important about it? And, and are we prepared to put the resources in that it's going to need for it to be meaningful, to dedicate large amounts of storage space to things that sort of shrivel up and crumble and, and aren't, you know, meaningful anymore? You know, I think you, you just have to sort of look that issue in the eye, really, and go to your curator with their accession suggestion and talk about it honestly. I have an interesting... I don't know if it's an anecdote or a cry for help. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I have recently found highly deteriorated Corex. And I don't know whether this is something that is common knowledge and I've just been beautifully sheltered for the years that I've been a conservator. But I, I think I kind of emotionally clung to Corex as a stable material that was, you know, it was going to be okay for the foreseeable f- future. But what I found is basically Corex that shatters on very low impact indeed. I believe because it's been exposed to sunlight. So it's basically just extremely dry. And I am interested in this, in the implications of this in terms of storage materials and mm. what we're using it for as conservators. So, yeah, help. <laughs> Oh, interesting. Yeah, so anyone who has more information on that, get in touch. Yeah, I think with archival materials, actually a lot of the archival materials we use are made from plastics, um, things like plastazote and Corex and crystal boxes and all of those Mm. sorts of things. And I'm not sure if there's a definition of archival in terms of lifetime, I've just thought, or whether we nobody's really felt the need to define that because... Um, things haven't really been in archival storage for long enough for that to have been a problem or whether it's assumed that things will be rehoused before that lifetime i've always wondered about crystal boxes because sometimes they can be incredibly fragile and i've always wondered about that i i did a survey of a very large number of detached lead seals that were stored in plastic boxes in mahogany drawers (laughs) um none of which was kind of ideal, really. Um, but the boxes themselves had become very, very yellow and brittle. Um, and the in some cases, the seals were really, really deteriorated. And there was a theory that the um, going around at the time that the deterioration of the boxes was causing off-gassing. And because um, they were uh, a complete enclosure, then uh, some of the um, acidic products were actually condensing 
inside the box and then being deposited onto the lead and then causing uh, extreme corrosion um, as a result. And so obviously one of the things that, that was was then recommended after that was complete rehousing of all of these sorts of things. But I think that, that there are sort of problems with uh, some of the storage materials themselves causing quite severe deterioration potentially for objects. And I, I'm not sure what these boxes were. I'm not sure whether they purported to be kind of archival ones mm. or, or what. But And people sometimes have touching faith that if your box closes, it's airtight. But that doesn't mean that there yes, can't that be a migration not. of gases through, actually, at all. So, yeah, yeah hard, to, hard to know, isn't it? I feel that I'm yeah. going to get to work tomorrow and immediately try and do some tests on this bit of Corex that I found. It'd be very interesting to know how old it was. Yeah. You know, mm. do, you, do you have any idea when the thing was um, rehoused? I mean, it could well have been in light conditions for seven years. But I will, mm. I will see what I can do to get that information. It's one of these, you know, it's been used as a lining for something um, not object related, but for storage of a non-object. And I assume this has been a useful thing around until it suddenly starts to not be useful around anymore. Um, but I, I'm going to write it down now. <laughs> This is the sound of me writing to to do some tests or or try try and find out a bit more about this piece. Um, Corex is so well used in conservation. Is I, I assume it's something that people have found, but it might be that because it's been used in storage that is often kept dark, it's not something that's that well found out. One of the things um, Abby brought to this course, which is quite quite eye-opening was some acid-free tissue that had been completely shattered and I've, I've not seen tissue in this condition but it looked as if a mouse had got to it and ripped it up into tiny pieces and made a nest and that was as a result of acid off-gassing from a very deteriorated plastic object that was wrapped in this acid-free tissue and so that that was quite an eye-opener as well um, and the other thing she brought was three samples of polyurethane foam I think one was in the dark one was on her desk and one was on the windowsill um, and you could see the intense deterioration that exposure to light can cause quite rapidly as a result of I'm that. I'm terrified of that stuff. It's. I feel like I, I've started finding it in absolutely everything and it's used for puppets and models and general statues. But clothes, yeah, shoes, exactly. that sort of Just, thing, yeah. yeah. I, don't, also, again, I don't know what to do with it. Also, again, inside technology. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and then what kind of, you know, if you've got a, if you've got a, a box lined with foam from the how old is it what is it how do we conserve it <laughs> help <laughs> yeah so uh christina uh so you recently went on this course and you did talk to abby a little bit in a little bit more detail i did i nobbled her in the car park so there's quite a bit of background noise in the <laughs> in the interview but um, she very kindly came and stood in the car park with me and chatted for five minutes so we can listen to that now So I'm talking to Abby Moore from the Museum of London, who's been running a really great plastics course that I've been on today. So um, my job at the Museum of London um, is the Collection Care Conservator. Um, so that involves um, all aspects of preventive conservation um, across our collections um, at our main site at London Wall and also our off-site store facility as well. 
And you've got a particular interest in plastics. Yeah, so um, I was a student at the Museum of London um, a few years ago um, and was lucky enough to spend nine months kind of rooting through the handbag collection and doing a condition survey um, of the plastic components um, in that collection. Mm-hmm. Um, and that led me to um, look a bit closer at identification um, because it was tricky to um, take a condition survey much further without really knowing exactly what I was um, kind of looking at. Um, so we started to explore different types of um, identification and what might be um, appropriate and um, useful to use in collections. Um, and I ended up working with um, UCL and also um, the Courtauld Institute mm-hmm. um, to look at um, some FTIR um, identification and also um, SPEMI GCMS, which involves um, analysing volatiles from um, plastic objects. Cool. But um, obviously most museums don't have access to sort of quite high-level analytical equipment like that. So what would you recommend for identifying plastics in those sorts of circumstances? So I think, um, well, certainly from what I've learned in sorts of reading I've done around plastics, it's looking for lots of um, visual clues that you can use to kind of um, build up a a case for what, you know, a plastic is most likely um, to be. So it might be um, looking for um, kind of distinctive appearances, like, you know, Bakelite obviously has a very distinctive appearance. Um, If you've got kind of imitation materials, that, you know, tends to be Mm -hmm. um, cellulose nitrate, cellulose acetate, trying to imitate, you know, tortoiseshell and mother of pearl, um, all those kind of things. Um, And also looking at the date of objects, um, that can be a useful clue. And if you've got um, trademarks on objects as well, and also sometimes smell can be a useful indicator, um, and degradation products as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And are there kind of useful things that you can do if you've got plastics in your collection? Um, I think I would advise most museums to, to look for the plastics that are um, going to cause most problems. So it's going to be um, the four sort of most vulnerable plastics, um, cellulose nitrate, cellulose acetate, um, plasticised PVC and mm-hmm. polyurethane foams um, because they tend to degrade um, most um, dramatically and um, most, most quickly if we can try and find those materials within collections and um, you know do something about it yeah. um, before they get to a you know, really poor condition then I think that, that can be a good thing. So on the course um, you were talking to us about different kinds of um, um, better ways of storing things yeah. um, as well and some of those were quite kind of basic low cost things you can do as well. Yeah absolutely so it's just knowing kind of um, you know basic principles like you know, you don't want to store a plastic that is going to um, give off acidic emissions in an enclosed container that's, you know, um, going to become extrusidic and then catalyse like, further degradation. Um, so it's knowing kind of when's appropriate to, to ventilate certain objects, um, potentially using um, gaseous absorbents as well, mm-hmm. um, like charcoal cloth. Um, and also um, things, you know, like absorbent materials mm. um, accelerates degradation of, of PVC because it, it sucks out the plasticizer. So um, avoiding using acid-free tissue for, for yeah. PVC objects, like those kind of principles. Yeah, yeah. Um, we saw some pretty dramatic examples of degradation, not only of the objects but of the storage materials as well. So that was a bit of a yeah, an eye opener for me that yeah. um, that acid-free tissue can just kind of shatter in the yeah. wrong um, conditions if it's too acidic. Um, what about um, treatment? Because that's one of the things that um, I think probably a lot of conservators would feel quite uncertain about is how to do any kind of basic treatments on these objects. Would you advise that or just leave them well alone? I think, it, yeah, it's very tricky to advise any kind of interventive um, conservation treatment on plastics because, we, I mean, we still have so much to learn. Um, I do think it's possible to safely um, clean some plastic materials and um, mechanically, like some of the mechanical cleaning techniques we looked at today. Um, 
and also, you know, using um, water to lift kind of museum dirt and dust off of um, some materials if it's necessary for, for display. Um, but yeah, certainly more intensive treatments like that would need um, quite a lot of specialist, um, you know, research and, and input before yeah. you just go ahead with, with something. Yeah. And so if you're in doubt, just better to leave them alone yeah, and absolutely. store them in a, in a better, in as good a condition as you can yeah, find. Yeah, advice, yeah. What do you think would be good areas for kind of research for conservators in plastics? What what do we still need to kind of find out about? I think we need to um, get better at um, identifying materials within collections because identification is the key to knowing how the thing's likely to degrade and what we need to do to, to look after it long term. Um, so whether that's conservators, whether it's conservators doing um, more research upon the point of acquisition to you know understand exactly what a material is before it comes into the collection, or whether it's you know development of um, techniques that are more accessible for mm-hmm. museums to use for, for identification purposes. Yeah, so we've still got a lot to learn about um, degradation, and um, you know we know that certain environmental factors cause um, degradation to take place. But for all different types of formulations, for all different types of plastics, um, we still need to, to learn exactly, you know, what causes certain types of, of degradation. Yeah. Abby, thank you very much for talking to us. You're um, welcome. I guess what I like and I took away from Abby's interview was that I really like that there's hope for the little guys where there can be identification without necessarily needing loads of analytical equipment and i really hope there's more information about that available soon because the little guys need it <laughs> yes we do <laughs> but yeah no i i loved it and uh did, did you you i'm guessing you really enjoyed the course christina i did yeah it, it was a really good um introduction to plastics it focused um quite a lot as you would expect on collection care um and on preventive conservation measures but um, we did do a bit of cleaning at the end and um, not very much because by then Abby had already shown us slides of what happens to uh, PMMA, to Perspex, when you clean it even with a fairly soft brush <laughs> and how easily some of these things are scratched. Um, and another thing that was incredibly useful was to look at a table with solubility parameters in and just to try and, and, and if only to recognise how incompatible most plastics are with the solvents that are most commonly used in Mm. conservation. Um, Pretty much the only thing that you can use on a lot of plastics is water. And even then, I think you would use it with some caution. Um, But that goes back to what Sophie was saying about washing, Mm. actually potentially Mm. being the the gentlest way of cleaning Mm. for these things. I think if, if it, it would make me determine not to let the plastics get dusty in the first place, actually. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I, and I think this is one of those cases where... Because they're quite static, is... though, of course. Yes, they are. <laughs> not easily done. I mean, I think the other thing is, you know, when you think about using a water-based adhesive, you think, oh, that's all right, there are some water-based adhesives around, and then you realise, ah, but can you get them off again without using yeah. one of these solvents? So we, we so talked you about really acrylic, narrow, you right yeah, down. exactly. Yeah. Things like Lascaux and so on, which are fine putting them on but not getting them off. Mm. What would your opinion be on Clouse LG, for example? I don't think it would be strong enough to hold most anything with any kind of heft. 
Yeah, I think and then the problem is because the surfaces are very smooth, you don't mm. have very much gripping. I mean, if you're looking at something a bit more porous, you might. One of the things we did at West Dean actually was try to stick bits of That's bone the, together. That's the context uh, of, and of it, uh, experienced its use before. Y- yes, of course. Yeah, and I think it, you, you probably. Yeah, it's worth considering for foam, actually, because I think a lot of the things we played with were both disrupted the foam and sometimes stained yeah. it or made it very rigid. And it was it was it was a really, really about the most difficult thing you could imagine trying to stick bits of foam together, actually. I um, think a lot of the time when plastics are joined, uh, what you might call originally in an object, um, there's an element of welding yeah, exactly. involved and, and the chemical um, bond that, that goes beyond just the kind of mechanical effects that you would get from a lot of adhesives um so um for example when people are making uh, showcases out of um perspex often they use chloroform to make the joins because Mm. you get an amazingly close join but that's effectively melting the plastic and welding it together which is why you get such a good join and i think that's often the case with the manufacturer of a lot of these things is that to some extent you're melting it and so on and that's usually not the way to go in conservation so it, it makes selecting adhesives for reconstruction very difficult but again perhaps this is a you know where we're going to have to start reconsidering our assumptions because actually reactivating original material is something that's been discussed occasionally but reactivating original media in uh, certain kinds of painted surfaces and that kind of thing has been discussed before and people generally frown on it although if you're looking at that versus you know something completely auto-destructing you know it's, yeah. i think you, you, it's worth going back to the consider this possibility although obviously the ethics have to loom very large uh, we'll try to uh, put some resources in the uh, show notes for you thank you so much sophie for joining us today we really appreciated it thank you for having me i'm still Aww. very honored thank you <laughs> thanks for coming <laughs> Dear Jane, I am fed up with being poor and considering leaving the profession to do something more profitable. Should I stick with it? Will things improve? Or should I sign up for that accountancy class? Signed, Crypto Conservator. Dear Crypto, you're not the only one who's fed up with being poor. I was watching a programme, How Did You Get to Be So Rich, the other night. And I was always watching it. I was struck by one of the people who'd made millions. He was electroplating metal things with gold. And as I was watching him, I thought, practically every conservator I know could do that job with their eyes shut. And yet he was a millionaire and we're not. And I think this really leads into your question about will things ever change? Because if you think, will the profession ever change so that we as individuals are paid more money? I think that's the wrong question. The question has to be, what do we as an individual have to do in order to ensure that the profession is paid more? And I think this comes a lot to how we value ourselves. How many conservators in private practice do we know that charge less than a plumber? None of us, I suspect, charge as much for an hour as the man who was gold-plating Bentley signs. But we could do, because what we do is as skilled, more skilled, than many of the jobs that we see around us in society. So how do we express our value better? You didn't say where you are, crypto, whether you're in the public sector or the private sector, so I can't give too much detailed advice. But if you're in the private sector, think about whether you're charging enough. Are you expressing your value highly enough? If you're in the public sector, have you asked for a regrading of a pay rise? I know it seems odd because none of us like to behave like that and put ourselves forward. But look at the procedures, ask about it. If you think you're paid wrongly, 
find out whether there's a trade union, whether you can join it and be better represented. If you're a student, maybe skill up, be a barista or a belly dancer, find something else that you can do that might one day help support your career as a conservator. But if you're fed up with being poor and thinking about being an accountant, honestly, I think there are not many bench working conservatives who are rich. If they are, I think it's possibly because their value is demonstrated by the value of the materials that they work on. I can't prove it, but I think painting conservatives tend to get paid more than, say, archaeological conservators. So we do need to find a way of saying how much we are valued and asking society to back us up on that. Is it accountancy more valued? Well, you certainly get paid more in accountancy. Meeting a colleague who's recently returning back to our sector from accountancy, there are downsides. If you want to do a job that you love, working with objects that you love, and you're prepared to offset the amount of money that you might get elsewhere, then stick with us. If you want to cash in, get off and get an accountancy qualification. Do it for a few years, earn some money. Maybe you'll love it, maybe you'll find it soul-destroying, but I'm sure that you can get back into the sector with both sets of skills, so good luck. But what can we do as a profession together? Well, I think ICON's accreditation scheme is really the best thing that we've done in the UK to ensure that conservators are properly recognised for their skills, expertise and training. If we use the accreditation scheme and the conservation register, we work to ensure that jobs and positions, contracts are offered to those who can demonstrate an appropriate level of skill, we can start to ask for more money, ask for the recognition that our qualifications deserve. I also think that those of us who are in higher up positions have an important role in ensuring that jobs that we employ conservatives are on are on a respectable amount of money, more than the minimum wage, and something that actually reflects what the conservatives are worth. So all of us have a duty to campaign to make sure that those entering the profession have a decent salary and a chance of being able to live a reasonable life and even maybe start to pay off some of their student or other kinds of debts. So that's a little bit of a call to the sector from me. Signing out. Good luck, Crypto. So this time I'll be reviewing PUR Facts, Conservation of Polyurethane Foam in Art and Design by Thea Van Oosten. And this is a publication from the PUR Research Project of the former Netherlands Institute for Cultural Heritage. I've chosen this book to review um, because I had no idea it existed. It was recently published in 2011 as a result of some brilliant European research on modern materials. Um, and the modern material in question is one that I'm quite anxious about in my own work. The goal of the book is to describe the conservation, manufacture and research of polyurethane foams, including features of chemical structures that have big implications to conservators for their deterioration. Though this is clearly of most significance to conservators and conservation scientists, the introduction states an aim for the book to be accessible to multiple audiences, including non-scientists such as curators and artists, to tell them basically what they're dealing with and what to be aware of. So it begins by describing the manufacture of polyurethane foams, what they've been used for, and early work of conservation when they almost immediately started to deteriorate horribly. Not all of these materials are in the form of foams, which I hadn't cottoned on to before reading this book, but of course polyurethane also comes as rubbers, adhesives, fibres and so on. After this sort of literature review of past work, there are chapters on chemical makeup and deterioration, and then a chapter described as being specifically for conservators, as it provides instructions for practical techniques. So how does it do? Well, 
Though the science chapters are described as for conservation scientists, the science is fairly accessibly described and supports the discussion without bogging it down for those not interested. The information on manufacturing gives an interesting context to certain patterns of deterioration and allows deterioration itself to tell more about the potential features of an object. There is also a rather wonderful table of consolidation agent by reference of use and study, referencing the complete bibliography that brings information from across the disciplines. As we said in our discussions earlier in the episode, being open-minded and creative in where and how we draw information is going to be one of the most useful things when we're looking at modern materials and their conservation. I'm surprised at just how much work has been done reading this book, and also how much potential even the old methods have for current practices, particularly for those conservatives who don't maybe have access to all of the different modern materials that we've got for treating them. As the problem identified is the photooxidation of foam forms in particular, the research project represented here um, used accelerated ageing not only for foams but also for foams treated with different consolidants in the process of developing a light stabiliser or sunblock for polyurethane foams. Along with this are some wonderfully satisfying images of foam under magnification before and after ageing with and without consolidant. This section really shows the positive effects of the use of consolidants and it's extremely satisfying, as I said, even just to look at the pictures. Though the story is less good with some of the forms of polyurethane foams, information and advice is still provided, as well as a methodology for condition assessment for different types of foams. As a low to modern science proficient conservator, I will need to spend a bit more time than I had here to focus on the nitty-gritty of chemical differences to be able to put any identification into practice. I can also see some of these identification and quantitative condition assessment processes being far more complicated than they seem to be described. However, the problems here are rather made up for, in my mind, by a series of case studies addressing several inevitable practicalities of object treatment, like size, toxicity and decision-making, and everyone loves a good case study section. In summary, it's a very interesting and encouraging resource for anyone with polyurethane foams or modern materials in their collections. It covers a huge amount of materials and has relevance for many different purposes and studies. It's not a quick reference book, however, and there is a lot of useful info hidden away that may be missed if you're avoiding the heavy science sections. Despite this, I would recommend it Reading about it is the next best thing if you can't conduct your own analysis, and there are many options to draw from for the resourceful conservator slash collections care professional. And for anyone wanting to purchase the book that Chloe just reviewed, uh, it's available from amazon.co.uk for £24.50, and it's also available straight from the publisher, which is Amsterdam University Press, uh, as an ebook for twenty-eight euros ninety-nine, and we pop some links to that in the show notes. Patreon shout out! Welcome to our newest patron, Jenny. If you want to join us on Patreon, just head over to 
patreon.com slash the c word and you can get loads of fun stuff like longer episodes and more art and you know just just good stuff basically um yeah so anyway welcome jenny thanks for listening with the c word and you've been listening to christina rosaic chloe ramsey sophie rowe and me jenny mathiasen Join us next time for an episode about digitization, surrogates and replicates. In the meantime, check out our website at thecword.show, tweet us at thecwordpodcast or simply email us on thecwordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. 